The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Uh, well, good morning and welcome to, to Bear Creek Church again. My name is Pastor Bill Pritchett. Uh, as, as was said earlier, normally it's Pastor Brian who's, who's up here, but I get the, the joy and the privilege of sharing with you this morning. I'd like us to take a look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 9. And I would encourage you to, to have a copy of God's Word in front of you, whether that's a Bible that you brought, maybe you have it on your phone or tablet, or, or, or we have Bibles on the back table, but uh, have something in, in front of you. I think it's helpful for you to see these words with your own eyes. Don't just take my word for it that this is what Scripture says, but look for yourself. I want to focus our time on verses 3 through 5. But we're going to read verses 3 through 9 together so that we have some context. And if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? So once again, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. God's word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you Believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you please pray with me? Father God. Oh, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you that we can come together and sing these songs and praise you in our time this morning. As we consider your word now, I, I pray for humility and a teachable spirit. I pray for your wisdom to see your word rightly. Give us ears to hear and soften our hearts to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, some of you may know the name John Wooden. John Wooden was a a college basketball coach for UCLA from 1948 to 1975. I read this interview that was done years ago. And in the interview, he said this. He said, I think it's the little things that really count. The first thing I would show our players at our first meeting was, was how to take a little extra time putting on their shoes and socks properly. The most important part of your equipment is your shoes and socks. You play on a hard floor, so you must have shoes that fit right. 
You must not permit your socks to have wrinkles around the little toe where you generally get blisters or around the heels. It took just a few minutes, but I did show my players how I wanted them to do it. Hold the sock, work it around the little toe area and the heel area so that there are no wrinkles. Smooth it out good. Then hold the sock up while you put the shoe on. And the shoe, it must be spread apart, not just pulled on the top laces. You tighten it up snugly by each eyelet. Then you you tie it. Then you double tie it so that it won't come undone. Because I don't want shoes coming untied during practice or during the game. I don't want that to happen. I'm pretty sure that once I started teaching that many years ago, it did cut down on blisters. It definitely helped. That's just a, a little detail that coaches must take advantage of because it's the little details that make the big things come about. It's the little details that make the big things come about. Wise coaches don't take anything for granted. They know that it is critical for their teams to understand the basics. John Wooden didn't assume anything with his players, many of them elite college players. So he he started with something basic, but important and easy to overlook or take for granted. Something, Something that if not done correctly can wreak havoc later on. What I want to do this morning may seem basic, but I, I think that there are times, and coming off the heels of Easter feels like a good time to stop and consider. To consider why is the gospel good news? What does it mean to say that you are a Christian if you are one? Why is it important that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is risen, that he is alive as we celebrated last Sunday? And I want to be clear about something. I don't just assume that because you are sitting here in church on a Sunday morning that you are a Christian. Church attendance doesn't save you. Now, if you say that you're a Christian, but you're never in church, I might question the genuineness of your faith. But mere church attendance is not what makes you a Christian. Now, again, I want to focus on verses 3 through 5. Why those verses? Well, remember what it said in verse 6. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this, you rejoice. Well, in what? And what was it was describing earlier in our text? Peter is saying to them, stand firm in the face of opposition or trials or suffering. But before you can do that, you need to consider who you are in Christ. Let's keep in mind that the Peter who is writing this epistle is the same Peter who who denied Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Pastor Brian covered this recently when one of the servant maids in, in the high priest's courtyard suggested to others around her that this man, this, this Peter, had actually been with Jesus. Peter turned to her, and according to the account in Luke, he denied it, saying, Woman, I, I do not know him. 
And yet the gospel writers tell us that this Peter, within a matter of a short time, maybe six weeks or so, Peter was out on the Jerusalem streets with an entirely different message from what what had been theirs on Good Friday. Well, what changed? Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is risen. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope because it proves that death is not the last word. Death could not hold him, as we see in Acts 2, where it says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And it cannot hold us if we are united to him in faith. We see this in Romans 5 and 6. What I want, to, want us to see this morning in our text is according to his great mercy, God has given us three things. Salvation, as seen in verses 3 and 5. A living hope, which we see in verse 3. And an inheritance, which we see in verse 4. All three follow our new birth. Our hope rests not in teachings, nor even in a teacher, but in the Savior, the Redeemer who rose from the dead. Let's start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter starts verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's consider that for a moment. First we have, Blessed be the God and Father. Or some translations say, Praise be to the God and Father. Peter starts by saying, blessed be God, or praise be to God. We read in the beginning more of what Peter is is looking at as he gets into the topic of suffering and, and how to have a right view. But he starts with praise. He starts by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. How often do we start with that? We start our day, start our prayer, start our approaching a situation with praise. And notice Peter's address here. Peter is saying that God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This echoes a common Old Testament word of praise to God, but changes it so as to praise God with a name not used in the Old Testament. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, by speaking of our Lord, Peter personalized the Christian's intimate relationship with God through his Son. But also, he has given Jesus the title Lord. The Greek word here is the translation of the Old Testament title Adonai, which was reserved for God alone. It is the supreme title of God that calls attention to his sovereignty. We see in Philippians that Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. As R.C. Sproul points out regarding this passage in Philippians, the name above every name in that text is not Jesus. People often jump to that conclusion because the next name mentioned is the name of Jesus. But when the Father bestows the name that is above every name upon Jesus, the name he bestows is Lord. He bestows upon Jesus the title that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Adonai, that he is Lord. So Peter is saying a lot when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And looking at our text again in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercy or abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. According to his great mercy, we are born again. We are Christians. We are believers because of the mercy of God. So Peter started with praise or blessing, then acknowledging God's great mercy and his sovereignty. According to his great mercy. With this, Peter emphasizes that salvation is based entirely on God's loving initiative. Salvation is due to God's great mercy grace, and sovereignty. He has caused us to be born again, or he has given us new birth, as it says in some translations. Notice also what Peter says in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. So when we read this text, we are reminded that we are chosen by God. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, this brings to mind the idea of election or foreknowledge. So let's talk about this for a moment. Sometimes we hear this talked about as though God looked down the the corridors of time and, and then he would see who would choose him and then that's who he foreknew. Well, that's not what Scripture says. And here's the beauty. It's actually better than that. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about some great choice you made. No, God chose you. God said to the Holy Spirit, this one, this one belongs to me. And so the Holy Spirit brought about regeneration in your heart This regeneration caused or created a faith in you that made you desire God. But God chose you. Now you may say, well, wait wait a minute. Now, I am the one that walked down the aisle during that altar call. Or I am the one that said that prayer or raised my hand during that Bible study. Not God. But it was the Holy Spirit working in your heart 
while you are still seated that caused you to stand up and walk down that aisle? That gave you the desire to walk down that aisle or to raise your hand. It was the Holy Spirit working in your heart that gave you the desire in the first place. You were dead, but made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And not just randomly, no, God God chose you with a purpose. Now, if God chose you, how do you respond to that? How does that impact the way that we live our lives? Who are you? You are chosen by God. That's, that's who you are. Steve Lawson said this when talking about the idea of, of God looking into the future and then choosing. He said, some say that God looked down the proverbial tunnel of time to see who would choose his son. And then in a reflexive manner, choose them for election. God has Never looked down the tunnel of time and learned anything, Lawson said. God knows everything. Immediately, eternally, perfectly, completely. He said God has never received a report from anything that is going on on the earth. God's knowledge is infinite. It is perfect. So God has never looked down the tunnel of time to see anything. And whatever God does foreknow, it is only because he already foreordained it. We are unable to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ on our own. We see this in John chapter 6 where it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word can in this verse is a word of ability. The word may is a word of permission. Jesus did not say, no one may come to me. He said that no one can, no one is able to come to me unless the Father draws him. If salvation begins with me, if it is initiated by me, if it is within myself to be able to believe, unaided by God, well then I should pat myself on the back and take at least some of the credit and then maybe give some to God. But if I understand that it is all of God, That before time began, God chose me and set his heart upon me and put into motion by his son and by his spirit all that would be necessary to bring me to himself and bring me to glory. Then all praise and all glory goes to God. So you may ask, why do some believe and others do not believe? Why is it that, that you have believed and others in your family have not believed? Why is it that you have believed and others who are, who are friends or classmates have not believed? Is it because you are smarter? Is it because you have a higher IQ? Is it that you are more spiritual when you are lost? Is it that you are wiser? Do you have greater insight? The answer to all of these is no. The reason that you have belief is because of God's great mercy and grace in the saving work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not die for an anonymous, nameless group of people. But specifically, he died for you and for me, who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It was a very particular death. It was a very specific death. 
Not one drop of his blood was shed in vain. Upon the cross, Jesus accomplished all that he came to do. Upon the cross, Jesus did not merely make us savable, but Jesus saved us. God is sovereign. God is in control. That means that every molecule in this universe is prescripted by God in his eternal sovereign will. That includes details such as the means by which you came to hear the gospel and come to a saving faith in Christ. It includes when we would be born in history, who our parents would be, who we, where we would grow up, what our gender would be, who we'd live next door to, which, who we'd go to school with. There are no accidents in our life. There is no, no such thing as blind fate. There is no such thing as good luck or bad luck. There's the goodness and sovereignty of a holy and righteous and just God. So if this is you, you are born again. You are born anew. You are a Christian. Some of you don't know when you came to know Christ. You just always believed. Others of you know the exact moment that you came to know him. Knowing the exact moment is not critical It's that there was a time of regeneration that matters. Do you ever start to doubt that you're you're not really alive because you don't remember the details of the day that you were born? No. Well, then how do you know that you're alive? Well, you're breathing. You know that you're alive because you're breathing. You're here. You're aware. You're you're alive. You, You don't need your birth certificate to tell you that you're alive. You just know. Well, how do you know that you're you're born again if you, if you are. Well, you can say, because I love him. I trust him. I, I believe the Bible and it says that I was dead, but now I am alive. I am alive in Christ. Not because of me, but because of God's great mercy. It was done by God. The Christian, a, a genuine Christian is not someone who just decided to be a little bit better. You see, many people think that If there is a God and he's paying attention to anything at all, and if he's a good God, that he will reward nice people just for doing their best. But that's not what Peter is saying here in our text. No, he's saying that this this living hope is found not in the person who has decided to become better or the immoral person who decided to, to turn over a new leaf Or the person who's been largely secular, who's getting spiritual. All of that may be done by human endeavor. But this, this cannot be done by human endeavor. What he's describing here is something that is done by God in us, not done by us for God. And he speaks of it as a birth. It's a birth that takes place on the basis of what Jesus has done. The hope is found in the death of Jesus. You had no say in your physical birth. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't decide when you'd be born. And the same is true with your new birth in Christ. That's what he's saying. That is because of what happened and what we commemorate on Good Friday. That what has been achieved in the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, that the Christian has a living hope because their confidence is placed there. Now, in saying all of that, you may be struggling with that, or maybe you have questions. 
And I would remind you that, you know, Pastor Brian really likes questions. You can reach out to me, though, too. But we would love to talk to you about that if that does bring up questions. Looking again at 1 Peter in our text, Peter not only explains that we are chosen by God, but he says that we have a living hope. Read that verse again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does he mean by this living hope? Now, Peter is not referring to fond hopes that may or may not be realized. When we think in terms of hope, many of us think immediately that we're talking about something which is uncertain. Oh, you know, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. I hope the stock market will recover. I hope I'll make it to retirement. We might think of kind of crossing our fingers. But that's not what he's referring to. What he's referring to, Christian hope, the hope that is here in the New Testament, is not the hope which clings to a mere possibility. But it is a hope, a joyful, confident expectation in the fulfillment of the promises of God. This hope is not wishful thinking, but confidence. Peter says that this is a a living hope. Because Jesus is alive. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive and we have a living hope. And a Christian is someone who has been united with Jesus, both in his death for sin and in his resurrection. And because Jesus is alive, therefore I am alive. The Christian is not the person that he or she once was. Living hope is another way of communicating its certainty to us. The hope of salvation is not dead and motionless, but alive and active. It has a sustaining power that manifests itself in faith. Since as we see in the book of Hebrews, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, The conviction of things not seen. There are many evidences that the objects of our faith are true. And our act of trusting in Christ is one of them. Our faith is the manifestation in the present of what we will enjoy in our glorified state. The reality of our future hope serves to generate and sustain faith in our hearts. We believe because what God has revealed is true. He reminds us of this one great truth, that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter is writing this, and when he is talking about the resurrection of Jesus, remember that he was a witness to this. He saw Jesus after he rose again. And even though we rightly emphasize the death of our Savior, and its satisfaction of God's wrath against his people. We must never discount the importance of our Lord's resurrection. Had Jesus remained dead and buried, there would be no good news at all. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Knowing that we would still be in our sins, if Jesus were not resurrected, is key to understanding the purpose and benefits of his rising again on the third day. 
This is why we celebrate Easter like we did last week. Our Lord's resurrection accomplished many things, but we begin to see its significance only when we understand its connection to our justification. Many people were crucified in the first century. If Jesus had stayed dead, his crucifixion would have been of no more significance than the crucifixion of thousands of unnamed and forgotten individuals in that era. But in rising to life on the third day, Jesus proved that death had no rightful claim on him. You see, sinners suffer the just sentence of death and their bodies lie in the grave until the final judgment. But death had no rightful claim on Jesus because he was not a sinner. The Father's resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that Christ earned the perfect righteousness we need in order to be, to be declared righteous before God. Because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us. This is the living hope that we see in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Christ's perfect righteousness is real. And it is imputed to us through faith in Christ alone. Unlike the unrepentant who are estranged from God, we have a secure hope that we have been justified before the Lord because our Savior lives today and has secured a righteousness that he shares with all who trust in him alone. Do you see what Peter has, has done in these few short verses? He's moved his readers from exile in verse 1 to the hope of an eternal inheritance in verses 3 and 4. And he has done so by the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In showing the activity of God in the past, he helped his early readers and us regain hope for the future. Through his death, Jesus bore our sins. We see in 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And through his resurrection we obtain, looking at verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. You'll notice here that it's an inheritance. Verse 3 said that we are born. We are born into a family. And in that family, we get an inheritance. So we are born again to a living hope that we have because of God's great mercy. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept in heaven for us. An inheritance is a gift based on a relationship. It's not a wage for a performance. You don't earn an inheritance. It is, again, on account of God's grace and mercy. The reservation of that inheritance is not restricted to believers of Asia Minor who received this epistle. It is for you and me as well. If we have been reborn in the power of the Spirit, we have been reborn to a living hope and to an inheritance that is reserved for us. It is the inheritance that first belonged only to the Son of God. But having been adopted and reborn into the family of God, we become heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. 
Whatever inheritance God the Father has reserved for his Son, he now shares with all those who have been adopted into the family of God. And this inheritance, unlike any other human earthly inheritance, is not going to perish. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to fade. For those who are in Christ, we have been given an indestructible inheritance that is kept in heaven. So you cannot lose your salvation. It is indestructible. Our hope consists of the inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven. Peter does not tell us the exact content of the inheritance at this point. But he does describe it. And he does so in negative terms, telling us three things that it is not. Three words are put forward by way of contrast to help us get our minds around the magnitude of our inheritance. These words are not merely synonyms. Rather, each word has a distinct meaning. Imperishable. It means not able to be destroyed. Undefiled means not polluted. And unfading means not subject to decay. Let's look at each of those. Imperishable or incorruptible, as it says in some translations. The inheritance cannot be destroyed. By saying that it is incorruptible, it is saying not only that it will not be corrupted, but that it cannot be corrupted. It is not able to be corrupted. Given the apparent brevity of the human life and the seeming permanence of creation, it is good to be reminded that we will outlive it all in a place that can never be destroyed. Undefiled. From our vantage point, it is hard to even imagine a world undefiled by sin. A world without locks or alarms. Cities where keys would be unnecessary for theft is obsolete. No jail, no police, no sin, none at all. When speaking of this inheritance, Peter says that it will be without stain or blemish. It will not be morally compromised or sinfully polluted. It will never be defiled. It will be unlike anything we have ever known. This present world is fallen and defiled. Our hearts are corrupt and deceitful. Our hands are stained with the persistent ink of pride. We are all defiled and polluted. Every one of us is contaminated. No one is pure. No one is clean. The world is filled with people who have dirty hands. In contrast, Peter tells us that our inheritance is unlike the world that we live in. It's unlike the world that we know. Peter next describes our inheritance as unfading. The inheritance toward which Christians are said to be moving is said to be unfading. It will never be subject to decay. Good news. When our own bodies, long since expired, are reunited with Christ on that final day, we will be made incorruptible forevermore, restored, new, complete. This is the inheritance that waits all who are in Christ. As we see in verse 5 of our text, it says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter closes his look into salvation's future by assuring us that what God has promised rests secure. Being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. We are guarded by God's power and are being kept through faith for a salvation. Here, Peter speaks of a salvation in the future. We as Christians talk about being saved. We'll tell the story of when we were saved. What we mean by this is that we came, when we came to a saving faith, that we have been justified and have, been, and have entered into salvation. The Bible uses the, the verb to save in every tense in the Greek language. There is a sense in which we were saved from the foundations of the world. We were being saved. We are saved. We are being saved. Salvation is a process, but ultimately we shall be saved when we enter into the fullness of the inheritance that is being reserved. While it is being kept for eternity, the same power that keeps the inheritance reserved for us is the same power that keeps us reserved for the inheritance. It is the power of God that keeps us to receive the full and final measure of salvation. Verse 5 of our text says that the, this inheritance is said to be kept in heaven. It's kept in heaven for us as we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that will be revealed in the last time. Doesn't that just sound almost too wonderful? This great promise is being kept for us through God's eternal power. Not mine, not yours, but God's. Can you imagine the effect these words had upon Peter's first readers? The the dispersed and small Sunday gatherings of Christians in what is now modern-day northern Turkey and elsewhere were spiritually tired people. Through the preaching of the gospel, they had come to know God's favor. But for some time now, they they had found life difficult. They had suffered. They were filled with a sense that perhaps, perhaps God had forgotten about them. And knowing their discouragement, Peter writes of their future salvation. He fills them afresh with hope. Within the first five verses, he has set them on their feet and told them what they need to do. They need to rise up and bless God or praise God. They need to rest in the reality of their living hope. Namely, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They need to be reminded that the inheritance they are going to receive is so extraordinary that there are not words to describe it. Peter can only tell them that it will never be destroyed. It will never be polluted. It will never be subject to decay. And finally, Peter affirms that this great future is kept for us by the power of God. Nothing on earth can shake it loose from those who are in Christ. Here's the essence of it. Genuine Christian faith, which brings us into a living hope, is found in Christ alone. He is the only Savior. He is the only one qualified to save. 
No one else has risen from the dead. No one else has made an atonement for your sins. It is in Christ alone. It is by grace alone. We don't deserve it, and we could never achieve it. And it is through faith alone. The mercy of God is awe-inspiring. There is nothing small or cheap about it. Sin has rendered us without hope except in God's mercy. Because our sin is great. God's mercy is great. Far greater than our sin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this we rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, yes, we we say again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for salvation that you chose before the foundation of the world that is not based on us, but based on your grace. We confess that we struggle. We struggle to fully understand this. We struggle to fully believe it. We struggle to trust it at times. We believe. Help our unbelief. We celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate that through Jesus, there is victory over death. That the penalty for our sins has been paid. We worship you and one day be with you in heaven because... Through his death and rising again, his righteousness has been imputed to us. Yeah, we confess that we still sin. We confess that we still struggle. Lord, our prayer this morning is that when we struggle, that we repent and turn from our sin and turn to you. Help us to cling to you in the truth of the gospel, the truth of the cross. We are often tempted to sin and then either make light of it or to wallow in it in despair and self-pity. So Lord, help us to see our sin as a big deal, as a horrible sin that has been paid for and forgiven. Our sin is great, but our Savior is great. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.